This podcast is brought to you by Chipura Realty Team. Hi guys, welcome to Haunted Real Estate. My name is Ashley. And I'm Lainey. We're so excited to do this podcast with you guys. So just to give you a little bit of information about ourselves, Ashley, me, I'm a wife of one and mother of two. And uh, I'm a bit of a collector of dogs. Not really, but I do love them. Um, I was a social studies teacher for 11 years before I left to pursue real estate full time. So I love history, um, but I also love real estate. And um, I'm an active agent here in Houston. Uh, But my other interests also include horror and true crime. I I love all of it. Um, And one day it just occurred to me uh, with me and Lainey both enjoying those things too why don't we find a way to do both? So here we are with uh, Haunted Real Estate, and here's my lovely sister, Lainey. Hey, guys. um, I'm Lainey here. I am a sister, auntie, also lover of dogs. I have a beautiful dog named Maxine. Uh, My sister and I grew up with a spooky mom that loved horror. We spent many nights watching horror movies, making our friends watch it with us, while our mom would be scratching on our windows at night, scaring the pants off of us and our friends. So what can you expect from this podcast? First off, everybody loves a good story. Um, and every property has a story. There's a history at every single home. Um, but we're not just going to talk about residential real estate. We are also going to talk about other spooky things that happened. It could be commercial real estate. Um, it could just be vacant land. Uh, there's something everywhere. And so that's what we're going to talk about. So we're going to explore spooky, sometimes sad, sometimes crazy history. Uh, We're going to cover all of it. So today's story takes us to Galveston, Texas, uh, where we're going to talk about a cannibalistic Native American tribe, pirates, voodoo, and ghosts. So the story we're learning about takes place at Stewart's Mansion at 14520 Stewart Road. And 1417 Harborside Drive. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Galveston is just about 45 minutes outside of Houston. Um, it's probably the least attractive beach in the world, but it's it's, it's a, beloved by all Houstonians. That is where a lot of us, you know, go on vacation. And there is a lot of haunted history throughout Galveston, hotels, homes. Uh, downtown Galveston. Uh, So I'm really excited to hear what Ashley has to say about this house. Yeah, so I I will give you a little bit of history of Galveston. And just to defend Galveston just a little bit, there's a lot of people that don't like it because the water is brown. But that is because that it's really reflective of the sand color. It's not, it's not really dirty. Um, Okay, so Galveston is a site that was first noted by Cabeza de Vaca, who got stranded there in 1518. So that's the first time that we learn about this area. Um, It got mapped out by the French in the 1700s and then later by the governor of Louisiana, Bernardo de Galvez. And this is where we get the name Galveston. Um, He did not survey it, nor did he ever actually step foot on the island, uh, but it is named after him. It's been a strategic point uh, during the Mexican-American War, 1846 to 1848, where Texas gained independence and also an important port during the Civil War. Uh, This is where many stories on the Galveston, uh, I'm sorry, on the island 
where you hear ghosts from Confederate and Union soldiers. There's all kinds of stories, and there's a lot of tragic things that have happened there, and we will go into those in other stories and other hauntings. But less known but very important, it actually was a huge site for immigration. Actually, before Ellis Island, a lot of people were coming in through the port in Galveston between the 1840s into the 1920s. So by 1880, Galveston was actually the largest city in Texas, and it was considered the Vegas of the time. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, There were lots of different people that spent time here, including Frank Sinatra. Love it. Um, So it boasted tons of fun things like gambling and prostitution. There's a red light district in Galveston you can visit today. Um, the hurricane of 1900 was actually uh, Galveston's major turning point. Um, they, I, you could argue they've actually never really recovered from it because investors, a lot of people ended up pulling out post-hurricane. Um, that hurricane is going to be a story in and of itself on another episode. It's the reason why we have the seawall today. There are some homes that did survive the hurricane of 1900 and they... Um, commemorate those with placards on those houses. So it's kind of cool that some of those are still around. And not only did it survive one of the worst hurricanes Galveston's ever seen, it survived many other hurricanes since then. Isn't that the one where it wiped out all the houses and like part of Galveston sunk into the ocean? Or am I making that up? I don't know about it sinking into the ocean, but I mean, I mean, that could happen because of just, you know, erosion and stuff and the hurricane creating that yeah. kind of crazy damage. So one of the things I really appreciate about Galveston is they love their history. There are historical markers and markers and placards everywhere. If you go into downtown Galveston, uh, the architecture there is pretty neat because you can just see the imprints that different groups have left over the, the many, many years. Um, it's kind of a fun mixture of French New Orleans and a little old Hollywood. So it, it's a really interesting city to look at, and you can check out some pictures of it on our Instagram. So today's story focuses on the Native American group, uh, the Caracuas, and uh, the Gulf Coast's most famous famous pirate, Jean Lafitte. Um, and we are looking at sort of where some major events happen for the Caracuas. And um, Jean Lafitte's house, the Maison Rouge, which in French is the Red House. Uh, These two properties we're talking about are about eight miles apart from each other. So we're going to lay some foundation work here. And I want to go ahead and say that Caroncoa is how we pronounce it here in Texas. I've heard many people pronounce it that way. I have also heard Caroncoa and I have heard Karenkawa. And if you check Google, she says Karenkawa. So any mispronunciation on my part, I just go, I'm just going to go and apologize. Have you heard of Karankawa? I think it's Karankawa, but yeah, like you said, it's probably originally said in a different way, different language. Yeah. So, uh, and just also to say, we never want to offend anybody. We're never trying to offend anybody. So. Especially me. I have a really hard time pronouncing a lot of words. Uh, so apologies in advance. Yeah, we'll just go and apologize every episode because it's going to happen. Because I'm on it. So sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the Karankawa tribe. So this is a coastal Native American tribe. They are a Gulf Coast tribe. Um, they typically went into smaller tribal groups. They were nomadic. 
they traveled and maybe 30 to 40 people, uh, but they actually, like the group, the tribe groups and stuff would meet up. So they might have stayed in some smaller groups, but they would gather in uh, larger gatherings. So not completely sure what Karankawa means, but people have said that it translates to dog lover or raiser of dogs. So those are our people. Yes. Like us, right? We love our dogs. So they did keep dogs with them and they were known for that. So well, some of the first historical records go back to them in the 1500s, um, but their sort of height of the time is the 17 and 1800s. So the men were large. Uh, they... What do you mean large? Like obese or tall? Tall. They okay. were tall men. The men had tattoos all over their bodies. They pierced their nipples and they wore... Um, they had a cane on their lower lips, so they were making some pretty big fashion statements at the time. Very kinky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they also, um, I just kind of thought this was interesting because I think about it a lot. If you live in Houston, you know that there are tons of mosquitoes here, okay? The size of dragons, and they're cruel and vicious. So I know that mosquitoes are not new. They've had mosquitoes since the dawn of time, okay? We saw... Jurassic Park, it was in the old man's cane. We know they've been around for millions of years. And Jurassic Park is fact, of course. What? <laughs> it's fact? I said fact. Oh, fact. <laughs> Side note, lady's wearing a Jurassic Park shirt right now, so it's just kind of funny we're talking about that. Um, I read that they would use alligator or shark grease, they put it on their bodies to ward off mosquitoes. Uh, we know that a lot of uh, native people of the time before off or citronella were predominantly used. Uh, we know people use mud, but I thought it was kind of cool because alligator and sharks are common amongst the Gulf Coast that they were using that to ward off mosquitoes. I wonder how they got shark grease and what did you have to do to be on that team? Like go, go get the shark grease. Yeah. Maybe like the men would go wrangle the alligator and sharks. And like once they were, dead, the women would somehow, like, get the grease off of them. De-grease them? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'll uh, have to look into that, though. So, like I said, they did travel in smaller groups along the Gulf Coast, but they they were all in communication with each other, the smaller groups. So, they would send smoke signals to each other, and that it was a sort of form of communication, but it was either like, hey, we need you because we're getting into a war or maybe there's a big event about to happen, but it basically signaled, uh, come on over. So prior to the 1900s, the warriors were known to eat pieces of their conquered enemies. So I don't want to point them out as they're cannibalistic. They just ate people. It was actually part of a sort of ritual they did. And it was the warriors that did it to conquer their enemies. Now, of course, when the Anglos came to the area, that's one of the reasons that they're going to point to as, you know, these people are savages and we need to, you know, Christianize them. Uh, but it actually, it was something they were not doing into the 1900s. It was something that was already dying off um, by the time Jean Lafitte showed up. It was not a modern practice. I wonder what made them stop, like if there were health issues or if someone decided like, hey, that's a really weird thing to do. I think that when the times change and, you know, like they're getting, there there, there was a heavier influence of other groups of people mm -hmm. that, you know, it just kind of changes like your perspective. 
like, oh, these people are frowning upon this, you know, and then that's when Native Americans would start dressing more like Europeans and there were there were heavy influences from the Europeans to the Native Americans. I don't know why it reminded me of my big frat Greek wedding. What do you mean you don't eat no meat? <laughs> it's okay. I make you lamb. <laughs> so, it, it, and this could have meant two things. One, either this was like an ultimate slap in the face to your enemy. Like, not only were you conquered and you died, but, um, you know, now you're going to be eaten. Or uh, they believed that they were consuming the courage of their enemies. Let's just say it might have been a little bit of both. So due to this, it was, of course, used as a reason to want to exterminate the Karankawas by the Europeans and early American peoples. So between the 15 to 1800s, they had documented, there were, well, documents found from Spanish explorers and French explorers. 1779, there was a war between the Spanish and their Karankawa for territory. Spanish were trying to take over the Gulf Coast, and there were 11 years of war, attempts at genocide, and uh, at the interim, Rafael Martinez Pacheco, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, negotiated a ceasefire. And it wasn't until 1819 that the Karankawa would find themselves in another ugly fight, but this time with the famous pirate Jean Lafitte. So that's a little bit about the Karankawa. So now let's get into Jean Lafitte's pirate colony in Galveston. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a background first, though, on Jean Lafitte, because he did not start here in Galveston. And while Galveston is heavily influenced by Jean Lafitte um, and pirates and stuff like that, he actually only spent five years in Galveston. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought it was longer. I know. It seems like it just because it's he just influenced so much of the area. I You know, we just kind of really, I don't know, cling to that a little bit. Um, but he is actually a Gulf Coast pirate, or as, well, he actually did not consider himself a pirate, but I'm going to tell you that in just a minute. Um, yeah, he actually came from the Louisiana side. So something that we should know about pirates and other outlaws is it's really hard to know facts because from what we know about outlaws and I'm sorry, but criminals is that they typically like to not document their misdeeds. Um, so, what? <laughs> um, so some of the dates and other facts may differ a little bit. Like we know like windows, but we might not know exact dates. And there's a lot that's just sort of unknown. There's a lot of legends. So a lot of what we're going to talk about is fact. But of course, some of it is what we think happened. And different sources are going to say different things. So supposedly he was very handsome and charming. And he uh, charmed the pants off of many a lady in his time. Um, and several sources are used here. Um, Texas State Historical Association, Britannica, National Park Service, um, Galveston Ghost Tours. There's lots of uh, sources that we used here to gather this information. So specifically to show that he is that charming and sexy. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is not sources to tell you how charming and sexy he was. Well, I was just pirate porn guys. <laughs> oh my god. Before we really get into it, I just wanted to tell you some of the sources that I got that from. Not that particular fact, but all of it. Uh, so Jean Lafitte, aka the Terror of the Gulf or the Gentleman Pirate. He was born around 1780. 
Now, this is another one. We're not quite sure where he was born. Some sources say France, and others say that he was in the French colonies in the Caribbean, uh, likely Haiti. Uh, we know he did spend time there for sure. Uh, but either way, he was either born in France or born in a French colony uh, here in the Caribbean. So we do know at some point, whenever he was in Haiti, when he was younger, there was a Haitian slave rebellion around 1804, which drove the Lafitte family out of Haiti and into New Orleans. So during the rebellions and the Napoleonic Wars, many Caribbean French people got displaced, ran away, decided to move, whatever it was. They ended up in New Orleans, which we see that heavy French influence in New Orleans today. Is Lafitte's the bar in New Orleans where they don't have electricity? It's like actually was his bar. Uh, there is a bar there. Uh, the only bar that I pulled with him was the old Absinthe House. Oh, okay. I, I think that has electricity, but hang on, let's look it up. So Lainey just looked it up. Uh, so it's Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop Bar. Um, it is the... Oldest bar from the 1700s. Uh, I've gone here a couple of times. Um, Ashley and her husband has a, had as well, uh, and her mom loved New Orleans. Uh, she went every year with her stepdad as their little getaway together. But yeah, Lafitte's is really cool. If you're in New Orleans, it's off Bourbon Street. Um, just like a stone house, uh, no electricity. It's it's just a really cool atmosphere. Uh, so you should totally check it out. Yeah. So, yeah, there are tons of fun bars there. And I just, I, I love the old spooky vibes. You know, it's Southern Gothic, as they call it. So Jean Lafitte was fluent in four languages, English, Spanish, French, and Italian. Um, he had an older brother. His uh, name was Pierre Lafitte. He was 10 years older than Jean. Soon after their arrival to Louisiana, following the Louisiana Purchase, they became smugglers, thus beginning their family business as pirates. Now, I am going to say that Lafitte did not actually consider himself a pirate, but a privateer. What is a privateer? Good question, Lainey. So, uh, a privateer is basically permissible pirating. Um, if a particular government, like for instance, for him, it's going to be the Spanish government and sometimes the American government, uh, would employ him to smuggle goods from enemy ships. So if you had permission to do it, then you're not really a pirate. Um, of course, that's a little bit debatable to the other side. You're a pirate. Yeah. Um, but if, if you don't get caught by them and you had permission from somebody else, I guess that's okay. If you look like a pirate and act like a pirate, you're a pirate. <laughs> but to him, he was a privateer. In fact, he'd get so pissed when somebody would call him a pirate, he would even um, duel them. So that's yes. how hellbent he was on, don't call me a pirate, I'm a privateer. But uh, we're just going to call a spade a spade. Yes, he might have been a privateer, but a little bit of a pirate, okay? So, and on top of that, he didn't always have permission to steal and his loyalties where, you know, they waver a bit. So he was well known in the sort of swampier region near New Orleans known as the Barataria. So the Barataria, I mean, you can go there today. Uh, it's wooded, swampy. It's got a lot of history there because that's where Lafitte spent a lot of time. I like that name. Barataria. 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 <laughs> 
So his his men, his crew, were actually called the Baratarians because uh, they used those water channels that were there for smuggling. Um, you can easily get from, you know, the port into, like, the Mississippi River area and into the Barataria. So Lafitte was well-known in these areas. So uh, it's not, again, this is one that's not totally confirmed, and I question it a little bit said that some of the Baratarians were men of color, runaway slaves. Um, The reason why I'm questioning if they were runaway slaves or even men of color is that he definitely stole slaves from ships. Um, He had slaves. So I'm I'm just not sure about that. But I don't know. If he stole slaves and sold slaves, I'm just not thinking that he kept them on in his crew as paid workers anyway. Um... So, and that was also his most profitable, quote, commodity, uh, were slaves, that he made his most amount of money doing that. So, during this time in history, now we're looking at, like, 1807, the U.S. made it illegal to trade with uh, the U.K. and France during the Napoleonic Wars. So, this seriously limited uh, supply of goods into the U.S., which in turn allowed pirates and smugglers to flourish. And, I'm sorry, privateers. (laughs) Many depended on those goods because, of course, if you're cutting off supply from two big importer-exporter groups, um, you had to find a different way to get it. And so that's where even the U.S. military depended a little bit on some of these smuggled goods coming in. So one of Lafitte's famous tales that is told here is famous tales. So there's a fun tale in the South. Um that we talk about. So the governor of Louisiana, Claiborne, did not like Jean Lafitte. He felt like he was a bad image with all that pillaging and plundering. Uh, plundering? I'm going to say plundering. Sorry. It's better than plunging. Sorry. He was not plunging. Um, so he offered a $500 reward for the capture of Jean Lafitte. And in turn, Lafitte offered a $5,000 reward for the capture of the governor. Wow, so, that's a ballsy move there. Kind of a badass in that way. So ultimately, neither happened. Uh, war was already about to break out in the area. And so, and you know, everyone had to put on hold the rewards for each other's capture. So War of 1812 is coming. Um, the British tried to use Lafitte for their benefit during the war, but Lafitte is in the U.S. and he actually needed to earn some goodwill from the United States because he already pissed off uh, Louisiana's governor, obviously. So he would like to gain some points here in the U.S. and possibly gain a pardon or two for him and his men. So Lafitte sided with the United States. So he helped during the Battle of New Orleans and Andrew Jackson secure their victory. Um, there is a famous bar also in New Orleans called the Old Absinthe House, where they supposedly took this meeting to decide if they were going to work together. And they did decide to work together. So after the war, he and his men did get that pardon around 1815. Lafitte attempted to gain back his territory lost by pleading to James Madison. And FYI, James Madison was the one that granted his pardon. Uh, While Jean Lafitte was away, his brother Pierre allied with the Spanish government to serve as spies for the Mexican War of Independence. This was Mexico's independence from Spain. So... Come summer, we're in like 1816 to 1817, Jean Lafitte and the Baratarians are chased out of Louisiana, and this is where they head to Galveston. The settlement that they created there was known as Campeche. 
This became the first real settlement of Europeans and Anglo-Americans on the island. His main headquarters were on the eastern side of the island, um, which was known to the Spanish as Isla de Culebras. This means Island of Snakes or Snake Island. Oh, that's creepy. Kind of makes me interested because I've never seen a snake in Galveston. Yeah, um... I, yeah, I, told, I guess it was probably all marsh where, like, there's... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty marshy. Um, and you can see little elements of that. Of course, there's been a lot of building and progress there in the last hundred years. So it's hard to say what that did look like, but it is hard to imagine at the same time. But I also haven't spent a ton of time at the Eastern End because there's not a whole lot at the Eastern End. As far as, like, restaurants and stuff go, it, it just kind of, like, goes into vacant land. I guess next time you go to Galveston, you're going to have to do a little snake adventure. Yeah, I'm going to go snake hunting. So the home that Lafitte, Jean Lafitte created there was Maison Rouge, the Red House. This is 1417 Harborside Drive. The home was two stories, lavish and filled with booty. And not, booty? not just <laughs> not just lady booty, but also pirate's booty. Um their their treasures and stuff. It's like every man's dream. House <laughs> full of booty. booty. He became Galveston's famous pirate, and um, he made Galveston the center of pirating and privateering. He created his colony on the island, and it ultimately ended up with over a thousand men. And anybody that wanted to join the crew or be a part of these men um, actually had to go through a personal interview process with Lafitte himself. Sounds intimidating. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was known to be pretty intimidating. And uh, once they accepted, they had to pledge loyalty to him. Okay, not loyalty to the U.S. or the Spanish government or any anybody else that's paying Lafitte. Uh, some sources say he actually ran his crew more like a mob boss than a pirate captain. I could totally picture that. Yeah. And I picture in my head. Luffy has to look like uh, Henry from The Witcher. I forget his last name. Cavill. Yes. That's what Luffy looks like to me. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And, you know, all we have of him are drawings and stuff, but he's always wearing a, a hat. He's got a, a mustache and Ooh. dark, like he's got the dark hair, the darker mustache, kind of some longer hair. Um, not long. It's not really long. Yeah. You know, he's supposedly he was dashing. So, when the Lafitte brothers came to Galveston, they were, of course, here on the island, the Caranquas. They had already been living here for a long time. And, of course, as they should be, the Caranquas were very skeptical of these newcomers. Uh, But Lafitte did make a point to maintain some sort of decent relationship with the natives. Galveston is not a really big island, so it's, it's sort of a small space to create hostility. There's not a whole lot of distance you would end up being able to put between each other. So there were inevitable run-ins and stuff with each other. So the two groups, to a point, seemed like there was a, I don't know, sort of camaraderie, sort of friendship. They were willing to work together. Um, 1817, a hurricane passed through, destroying much of Campeche, and the Caracuas were actually the ones who helped put the settlement back together. So sweet. So there is evidence to show that you know, 
It's like neighborly love. Like they probably weren't best yes. friends, but you I know. You know what? That's probably perfectly to describe it. They acted neighborly with each other, um, but didn't have to be best friends. Uh, and, and for that service, Lafitte paid them in some of the goods that he had, which um, may have included some weapons. But as we're going to see here in just a little bit, the Karankwas are seriously lacking in weapons and especially what would have been modern technology for the time. Um, they just didn't have a lot of it. They were still hunting and fighting with bows and arrows for the most part. But, I mean, you know, they got a musket or two every now and then from Lafitte. So legend says, though, this is just kind of a part of that spooky ghost story stuff. There is a legend that Lafitte actually called a voodoo queen during that hurricane. Ooh. Um, and keep in mind, remember, he's heavily involved with slave trade and he spent time in Haiti. So voodoo is not unfamiliar to him. He knows all about it. Um, and you see a lot of heavily, uh, er, a lot of heavy voodoo influence in New Orleans. So it's pretty common to see the influence of that in the South. I don't know a lot of people that practice it, but a, a lot of that influence in the South and you can buy our, all sorts of voodoo stuff from New Orleans. I love it. Yeah. And every time we went to New Orleans, I always brought something back to keep in the house because there's like the the protectors and the good luck charms and stuff like that that you get. I just think those are fun. I have a protector over my front door. And also, it's either love or sex. I I think sex. I'm not going to lie. Bring sex into my house. Did you buy that on your own or did mom buy that for you? I think think it's for mom. That's fine. Um, yeah, I have a, I have a protector too. I've always kept it near my front door. Um, at my old house, I had a window over the front door. I kept it there. And then now I keep it in a house plant. Yeah. I mean, so far I've been protected. So, you know, why not? I like having it. Yeah. Doesn't hurt. Um, yeah. So again, so he spent time in Haiti. We knew he was familiar with that. So supposedly he calls over this voodoo queen. And as the story goes, he wanted a pack of 12 dogs to guard the Maison Rouge. So she performed a ritual over each puppy as it was born, supposedly during the hurricane. Um, and these are the Hellhounds, uh, his pack of 12 dogs known as the Hellhounds. And you hear stories all the time at Stewart's Mansion and where Maison Rouge's property is now um, of weird sounds, smells, glowing red eyes that all come back to uh, his hellhounds that were there. How did he happen to get, a, I guess, a dog that's about to birth puppies and the voodoo queen all during this hurricane hitting? Um, that's a good question, and I'm just going to say let's chalk some of this up to lore. Yeah. So these dogs are actually known as the Campeche Devil Dogs. So Not creepy at all. Exactly. <laughs> So now sometimes, uh, sometime between 1819, I'm sorry, 1819 to 1821, there was a party at Campeche and Maison Rouge. So some of the Cronquas supposedly stole some of the privateers' um, goods, and they ended up getting banished by Lafitte. He was pretty pissed. Um, so they went back to their tribe where... Today, Stewart's Mansion is and was later built, but at the time it was just vacant land. So within a couple of days, uh, Lafitte's men were hunting over in that general territory, which was Karankwa territory, um, but near where Stewart Road is today. According to the Texas State Historical Association, Lafitte's men kidnapped a Karankwa woman. So the stories differ. Um, Of course, I feel like a lot of stories begin with kidnapped a chief's daughter. So Mm -hmm. that is one story. 
That's not confirmed. Other stories say it was a Karankawan woman or Karankawan woman and that's it. And then others say it was one woman for every man that was hunting that day. Well, that's a big difference between one person and... Yeah. So most stories talk about one woman. So we're, we're going to say it was a Karankawan woman. Um, I don't think it was multiple, but anyway... In retaliation, four of those hunters were killed by Karankwa warriors. Since Lafitte had access to tons of resources, which include weapons, he was well prepared to take on any kind of retaliation. Uh, but the Karankwas were not. They were ill prepared to deal with this because they really only had bows and arrows. Um, this ended up being a three-day battle that they had with each other, known as the Battle of Three Trees, which today stands on the land of where Stuart Mansion is. Um, so there's a lot of ghost stories there. The Kronkwas lost many men. Uh, they called the areas three tweet twees. Three tweets. Three tweets. Three trees, because at the time there was a large pine tree, and then further away there were two smaller trees. They actually weren't even really near each other. Uh, but from the ships, it looked like three trees were together. So that area is known oh. as the three trees. So, there were approximately 300 Karankwas and over 200 of Lafitte's men who were, of course, heavily armed. So, that made a huge difference. Armed 200 people and minimally armed 300 Karankwas. So, the Karankwas ended up forced into the wooded wooded areas um, and they fought guerrilla warfare. And then, ultimately, the losses were great for the natives. And eventually, they did have to flee into their canoes because, along with muskets that Lafitte had, he also had cannons. And he brought the cannons to this fight. So, um, guys, I mean, they shouldn't have stolen from him, especially since he's got the hounds and a voodoo queen on speed dial. But... (laughs) It's just, it's still so sad. They were, they didn't have enough weapons in the first place. Don't you miss the uh, speed dial sound? It made you feel, yeah, it made me feel so efficient when I was like calling a number. I feel like we have that now. Like I just, when I click a number, essentially everyone's on speed dial now. We don't dial anybody's number almost. I wish every, you know. That'd be nice. That would be nice. Think about that, Apple. So anyway, they had to flee into their canoes to get away from the cannon fire. So to end that, there's no record as to what happened to the woman. Um, We just really know about the Battle of the Three Trees and how it started. uh, But that's about it. We did. No one decided to document what actually happened to the woman. So shortly after Battle of Three Trees, Lafitte ends up forced to leave the island by the U.S. military. Uh, Before he left, whether it was on his own accord or um, the accord of the U.S. military, he set fire to Campeche. Jeez. I hope they kicked his ass out. He's just, he's a god that gets away with so much. Yeah. Um, Now, what I'm saying is we know he was kicked out by the U.S. military, but we don't know if he set fire to it on his own or if the U.S. military was like, hey, we don't want other pirates coming to this island, so go ahead and, like, burn it to the ground. So... Maison Rouge, what stands there today, is not the original structure. Oh, um, that's that, probably where all the snakes disappeared. Oh, the yeah. Fire. Yeah, maybe they went down with the fire. So today there is a different structure at 1417 Harborside um, that was built into the late 1800s. But they did build on top of the original cellars of the Maison Rouge. So the structure standing there today is not the original house, but a well-known haunted site to many people. Um, And there are lots of visitors that come and look at it because it is really spooky looking. 
Do you, you remember passing it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like a creepy wooded house yeah. that looks like it's from the 1800s. It has a very creepy vibe. It's like, got like a witch vibe yeah. to it. It's so weird. Um, you kind of don't want to look at it for too long. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get selected. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they actually, they had to build up a big fence around it because many believe that since Lafitte was there, there is... So many stories about his famous lost treasure, and people believe that his lost treasure mm. could be anywhere on the island. But of course, people were like, "Well, let's focus on his house because he probably left it at his house when he burned it down because that makes the most sense." Not likely. I mean, if I'm gonna leave some treasure behind, I probably not just gonna go buried in the ground and dip on out and go ahead and burn that house down while I'm at it. So I don't think that's actually what happened. Um, but again, I mean, there's just so many stories, but yes, they did have to erect a fence around the property to keep out the treasure hunters because for decades, people were digging up the yard and digging up the house and, um, just destroying the property. So I don't think that he buried it there. He only spent about five years here. I, you know, and who knows, who knows where, if there is any lost treasure, where it would be, if it's on Galveston at all, which it could be. Uh, maybe he planned the possibility of a return or if he ever had to flee somewhere else again, he could stop in Galveston and grab his gold for some extra cash. Who knows? But ultimately, he spent so much time along the Gulf Coast, especially between Louisiana and Texas, that it could be anywhere. Uh, it could be in Barataria, it could be in New Orleans, or anywhere on the Gulf Coast between New Orleans and Galveston. But there are actual stories of silver and gold washing up in and around Galveston Bay and Mm -hmm. just little pieces of treasure. So people do think it just continues that idea that there's treasure out there because there's been little bits and tastes of it over the years. Well, I wish I was at the beach that day. So... That's not the end, of course, because we barely talked about uh, what happened on Stewart's Road. So we talked about the Battle of the Three Trees, and there was no home site there at the time. So you're probably asking yourself, why is it called Stewart's Mansion? Right? I've been asking myself that this whole time. The whole time. So many years after Lafitte left Galveston, both of those properties changed hands multiple times. Stewart's Mansion, though, itself, the property had several owners. Um, the mansion that we're talking about was actually built in 1926. It was 8,200 square feet. It's a Spanish colonial style built by George Seeley Jr. And we will post a picture of that as well. Um, The inside is really a sight to behold. Um, There are many paintings of pirates all around. Uh, The vibes are kind of spooky. Um, Just some of the pictures of the pirates. And we'll have to post pictures of that too for you guys to see. What are, what's spooky about it? Like what, what are the pirates doing? Or are they... So, uh, looking at Stewart's Mansion's pirate paintings, there's, I mean, it's not exactly spooky, but it's the fact that they're all around the house, and the house itself, like, from the outside, it looks like one of those old, creepy churches, um, just, like, all white concrete, just two small windows at the front, and on the inside, it also kind of has, like, a cathedral vibe, uh, arched hallway entryways and all the paintings that fit in there i mean there's this guy here with a musket but it's not just sorry we we keep saying paintings but there are murals on the wall yeah and so it's to me that's like weirdly i don't know more permanent than a painting in a sense like that's a pretty big commitment to put a mural on your wall yeah and there's this one um 
It's really hard to tell what it is, but it does scare the shit out of me. I would hate to walk into that room at night. This guy's face is like painted white. Kind of reminds me of Beetlejuice. Um, but has like really dark black eyes and a pointy nose and just like a black mouth. Um, wearing really colorful clothing. The background's like turquoise, but um, he looks really creepy. It looks like he has wings, but it could just be a poor photo quality. Yeah. So whoever did this, you know, just has a, has a really weird um, artistic style. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You should definitely look at it. I mean, if anything, just it's fun to look at those kind of old pictures and stuff like that. So George Seeley, and side note, if you're in the Texas area, South Texas, uh, George Seeley is where Seeley, Texas is named after. So there's a town in the area named after him. He then sold that property to Mako Stewart um, in 1933. So this is where we get Stewart's Mansion, which is just kind of funny because it wasn't Mako Stewart that built that property. It was George Seeley, but it got its name Stewart Mansion and the name of the street after Mako Stewart. Fun fact, though, uh, he was really big into the banking and insurance world, but Stewart Title is actually named after him. So if you've ever had a closing or anything on your property, you might have been to Stewart Title. And so this was actually his house. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. So people on the island love to tell stories. Uh, there are a lot of full stories about Mako Stewart, but there are stories that he went and murdered his entire family in the home. Um, but in reality, he actually died before his wife and son. So uh, assuming the um, gravestones are correct, then he did not kill his family. That would uh, really suck to, like, if you died and then later on everyone said you killed your husband and two children. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just... And, and we know how people love these, like, crazy tabloid-like stories. So even though the evidence clearly suggests he didn't murder his son and wife, seeing as he died before them, and it was actually his wife who then donated that property to the uni University of Texas Medical Branch, that, yeah, it just it couldn't have happened that way. But people love their stories, so it is one of the spooky stories that's sometimes told about the property, but just you know that that didn't happen. So when it was sold to the Texas Medical Branch, uh, I'm sorry, University of Texas Medical Branch, it was used as a convalescent home for crippled children, uh, according okay. to GalvestonGhost.com. So not completely forgetting about Lafitte, there's actually a historical marker on that site called Lafitte's Grove, um, sort of memorializing Lafitte, but also the Battle of the Three Trees. Um, so I know what you're asking yourself now. What's standing there now? So they do still have the mansion, uh, but actually in 2008, it was sold to developers and they have since then built condos on the land. Whoa. Yeah, they did. They did. Um, they did keep the mansion. It's sort of the, uh, what do you call it? Like community the, area. The leasing office. Yeah, it's the <laughs> leasing office now. Um, no, I think it's the common area for people that, live in the condos. So, uh, it can, I mean, it can still be visited. I just, I, I don't know how public they allow it now since that's, you know, now a residential area. You just say that, put a down payment on a condo. <laughs> yeah. No big deal. Put a down payment on a condo and go see those pirate murals. Easy peasy. Uh, but there, so there have been renovations and stuff since then, according to Galveston County Daily News, the developers were working with the historical society to help preserve that history. So, which I love that, and I think Galveston tries to be really good about that. 
um, just respecting that this area, this territory, this house, there's a lot of history there, and they don't just want to knock it down. So the land itself is known to be haunted. There have been several sightings uh, that have been reported by the visitors. Of course, the dogs, and you hear about the Campeche Devil Dogs in at both Harborside and Stewart Mansion. Uh, people say they can either hear the dogs, smell wet dogs, hear growling, or see glowing red eyes at night. That would scare me so bad. Yeah, any red glowing eyes, I just feel like um, that's just an automatic no. Yeah, but there are legends, and this is this is true among many legends. Not this is not specific to Galveston, but seeing these dogs is a bad omen. Um, it means something tragic is about to happen, and and people all over the world believe things yeah. like that. So I wouldn't think it was a good omen, though. Like, right, great things are about to happen to me. I just saw this dog with red glowing eyes. I should go to the SPCA and pick me up a puppy. I think yes. that's what that was telling me. Yes. So another one that's been reported uh, on several occasions is the Voodoo Queen uh, performing rituals, seeing a woman in white. Um, Other reports say that there have been sights or sounds of warriors and pirates battling, especially in the area of the Three Trees. And then another one which I thought was interesting was loud laughing when nobody else was there. Like our sister Megan was there? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Our sister Megan has one of the loudest booming laughs and kind of voices. Um, you can hear her in a crowd in, you know, Minute Maid Stadium, wherever. Yeah. Uh, so like we said, Harborside was built on after it burned down. The cellars and a few things remain. Um, and another home was built on top of it, actually by another sea captain. Uh, I'm not saying pirate because I don't think he was a pirate. I could not find very much about him. Uh, but... You can, of course, go to our Instagram, see what that property looks like now. Like I said, it is closed off. You're going to see fencing around it because treasure hunters have been there for um, many, many decades looking looking for lost gold because who doesn't want that? But it is pretty. what is pretty amazing about that property, even though that was not the original Maison Rouge, is that it's still been standing for so many hurricanes and if and anybody that lives in the south and is familiar with hurricanes like you know that's a big deal um that these houses aren't being constantly knocked down by the many hurricanes they've seen over the last hundred years so there is a lot of debate after of what happened to lafitte after um he left galveston so what we do know, Pierre does die not too long after Galveston, um, but there have been a lot of stories as to what happened to Lafitte. For a long time, people thought he went down into Colombia or somewhere in South America where he eventually died, um, not really knowing what his activities were. Uh, but there have been more recent discoveries that may point to him having just moved to North Carolina, actually. And that was that's much more recent. Um, but if you live or have visited the South, especially Texas and Louisiana, the stories of Jean Lafitte are shrouded in mystery and lore. He's a legend here. And just to point out some of the other supposed Lafitte haunted places, uh, the Barataria Preserve, which you can visit today. It's part of the um, National Parks Service. You can look it at the National Parks website. Barataria. Barataria. Um, the old absinthe house, house the Lafitte bar, uh, the old absinthe house actually supposedly where he took a meeting with Andrew Jackson before the Battle of New Orleans. Um, and New Orleans is his home. And so there, uh, his house in New Orleans is also another haunted site. So 
If you ever take a visit into the southern parts of Louisiana and Texas, I definitely encourage you to look at those things because they're, I mean, if anything, it's just fun. I mean, who doesn't love a good pirate story? Uh, But there are lots of ghost tours in both New Orleans and Galveston that you can take that are going to be related to Lafitte. So with that, that is the story of Stuart Mansion and 1417 Harborside Drive. Uh, where if you're ever in Galveston, Texas, just go take a look. Awesome. I really enjoyed that story. Um, of course, I've, I've heard it before because we are native Houstonians, but uh, there was a lot in there I did not know. Uh, so I'm looking forward to taking a little trip to Galveston and brushing up on my history. Yep. And we will uh, continue to educate you with more fun stories and hauntings going on around the world. And thank you guys for listening and go check out our Instagram at haunted.real.estate. And that's all we've created so far. Uh, One day I'll give you a Facebook page and uh, maybe even an email address to go to. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Thank you.